Amen. Amen. Well, this is our second week in the book of Jonah. We looked at chapter one last week. If you guys need to go back and, and, and check that out, you can. It's on the website. Jonah chapter two. Uh, before we get into the text, I want to ask you a question that I've, I've thought about quite a few times in, in my life. And, that, and this question is this, how, how deep, how deep existentially, how deep do you need change in your life? How deep is humanity broken? You drive around and we look at, at the, the, the good and the bad in our culture and we see brokenness and we see hurt and we see pain and we see sin and we see all of these things in our culture and we ask the question, um, what, what, what is the problem with humans and how do we fix humans, including ourselves? How deep do we need to go to change ourselves or to, to be made whole? And there's 7 billion people in the world right now that are all voting with their lives on how they can do that. You know, you, you, you show with your, your time and your thinking and your doing and your life and your words, you show um, what you believe is going to make you better or change you. And so there's lots of different ways. Some of us think, you know, uh, I'm pretty good, basically got a good hardware, just maybe need a, a, like, a, like a software update. You know, I, I, I really, I just, I think if I just got some counseling, maybe could, could sort of sift through my past traumas and my past experiences, I think I would probably be changed enough. Other people um, go, you know, I'm, I'm good with all that. I think I just need some outer change, you know, like some topical change, like maybe a little less weight on the bones, maybe a little, uh, you know, some, maybe just some, some cosmetic things, maybe a little better clothes. I think I would change me enough. Other people are, are looking deeper than that, maybe even, even into the, um, the, the deepest part of their soul. And they're like, I need to change my whole life. I need to move to a new place. I need new friends. I need a new job. I need to know because I need to change. The question is, how deep do we need to change? How much would it take to fix us as a humans? How much would it take to, to actually transform us? And what happens if we don't go deep enough? A lot of us think oftentimes our, our circumstances are going to change us. So I'll just tell you a funny story. Um, because I like to laugh at myself. Uh, you know, a few years back, whatever, when the smoke was terrible, uh, that's how my last, last week I started a story. It started just like that. It's like, it's like we're in the smoke all the time. Uh, smoke was really terrible, and my wife and I, we were just, we were kind of like really frustrated with the smoke thing. We were like, let's just, let's get out of here. Let's run away from the smoke. Can you guys do that ever, you know? And so, so we didn't really have money for a trip. We really had no business taking a trip, but we're just like, whatever. We're just, we're grumpy. We're angry. We're going to take a trip. So we jumped in the car, threw the kids in the car, and we took off to Boise. We'd never been to Boise before, and it ended up being way longer than we thought. Really long drive, and we had a really little baby at the time, and it was miserable. Like, we were just like, what were we thinking? Why did we drive out here? And then we got to Boise. We got checked into our Airbnb, and I think it was like some college guy's dorm or something that, like, it was gnarly. I mean, we're like, we can't stay here. This is not safe, right? So we left the Airbnb. We're driving to get a motel. On the way, driving to get the motel, my son gets the stomach flu in the car. Uh, I didn't mean to say it was my son. I meant to just say one of my kids. I didn't mean to add him like that. Anyways, he, you know, he, um, something came out of him in the car uh, and all of his seat. And, uh, and so I'm just really mad at this point, right? Because I'm like, we, 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 we left Medford at the time. We left Medford to escape our problems. And now we have problems here. Frustrating, right? So I drop my family off, get them checked into the motel, um, and now I, I'm the, I get to do the dad thing. I got a car seat covered in vomit. What am I going to do with it, right? Uh, so I'm driving around Boise, just frustrated, angry, and I see a car wash. I'm like, okay, where, where would you take a car seat with vomit, and what would you do? 
You can take it to Walmart. Like, what are you going to do? Like, so, so I go to the car wash. It's a self-serve car wash, you know, with the whole, like, thing, you know? And I, like, I roll up, and I put the quarters in, and I'm like, okay. So I pull the car seat out, and I sit the car seat there, and I'm all, seemed like a great idea, except I was standing too close, right? And it just vomit just all over me, right? It was terrible. So now I'm covered in vomit, and then I get back to the motel room, and my son's got the flu, and, and then I think it, maybe, it was, and maybe it was him too. He had hypoglycemic issues, or maybe it was another one of the kids. I ended up, one of the kids, I ended up in the emergency room, in the urgent care with, with this. I mean, this was the worst trip ever, right? Just so angry. So we came home, and and I think here's what we realized. We realized that we weren't running from the smoke. We weren't trying to escape our circumstance. We were trying to escape ourselves. And we were just tired of ourselves. And don't we believe sometimes this lie that if I could just get out of this situation, if I could just get out of this place, this space, this moment, this thing, this job, this relationship, whatever, if I could just get out of that, then my life would be better. And then sometimes God says, okay. And he lets us out of it, only to find, oh, I'm still miserable. I'm still unhappy. Because see, the problem wasn't that we needed a trip. The problem was that we needed a, a, a change in our perspective. So Randy and I now, whenever we think about doing something impulsive, we go, hmm, maybe, remember Boise? You know, whenever we're like, we should just go get a dog or we should just go spend money. We're like, no, no, remember Boise? The problem lies in our perspective, right? So Sam, what does this matter? Uh, well, Jonah, okay, Jonah has had circumstantial change. We're gonna see that in our text. But the question is, has Jonah had existential change? He's had circumstantial change, but is he actually a changed man? Because remember last week we were introduced to this prodigal prophet, this really terrible prophet, probably the worst prophet that we have, know of in the Old Testament. Um, yes, he was a believer. Jesus loves him, okay? But terrible prophet. Did it, well, you know, God calls him to deliver this message to the Ninevites. He runs completely the opposite way. Charters a boat at Joppa, jumps on a ship with these, uh, uh, these Phoenician, polytheistic, pagan Gentiles. Uh, God ends up bringing this massive storm about. And Jonah, rather than doing what you should have done in that moment, was saying, let's turn the boat around. I know what this is. God's trying to get me to go the right way. He's like, just throw me over the edge. Which is Jonah saying, I would rather drown than do what God has asked me to do. Now, this is a believer, Okay, we're not talking about an unbeliever. Have you guys ever been that stubborn in your life with the Lord? God's like trying to, to nudge you into obedience and you're like, no, I'd just rather die. He actually says that all throughout the book. I was rereading the, the whole book of Jonah. He says it like five times, He's such a drama queen. And I go, just rather die, just kill me. Like God takes away his shade in chapter four. And he's like, just kill me, you know? I'm like, what a millennial, good grief, man. Like my smartphone broke, just kill me now, right? He's just a baby, okay? Um, Anyways, so, <laughs> so Jonah, he, God's trying to do a change in Jonah. The question is, how deep is that change? And, and is that change really going to make a difference? And so what we have this morning before us is we have this interesting section in the book of Jonah where the, the material changes from narrative to poetic song. Basically, after, after the, the chapter one narrative, um, we, we get a... Um, to, to take a look at Jonah's internal processing, Jonah's internal prayer from within the, the belly of the fish. And so that's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting and it's also kind of puzzling because as I read it, I go, okay, so what are we learning here about what's taken place in Jonah's heart? Has God done enough discipline to change his heart? Is, is Jonah really a changed man? And of course, if you read the rest of the book, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to say. 
You know, you'd think this would be like the moment, right? Tossed overboard, sinking in the ocean. Like you'd think this would be the moment where Jonah really is a changed man, but that's kind of what we're going to try to figure out this morning. So let me give you a few thoughts here. First of all, let's, let's, read, uh, let's read verse 1. We'll start in chapter 117 for context. Let's just get into this. So verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, now I spoke to this last week. I just feel like I need to say it again. I know some of you guys are thinking, that is so far-fetched. Human life can't live in a belly, Right? Um, what about a baby? Just saying. Okay. What about a baby? You know, babies live. Some of you guys are like, this is so far-fetched. Like, there, there's no way that the God who created the stars, the God who breathed the universe, the God who raised his son, the God who, who you know, walked on water, the God who raised Lazarus, the God who parted the Red Sea, yeah, that's all fine. But this has got to be a parable, right? Because, I mean, God couldn't swallow a man and have, or a fish couldn't swallow a man and have it sustained inside the fish. It's ridiculous. If we think about this from a supernatural perspective, which the Bible is written from a supernatural perspective, it presupposes that God has this supernatural ability. This isn't really that far-fetched. So God commissions this fish to be his agent of correction in Jonah's life, to bring Jonah back into compliance with the will of the Lord. And in verse 1, we see something that we should have seen a long time ago, and that is this, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Jonah should have prayed at the very beginning of this, right? Jonah should have prayed when God told him to go deliver this message of mercy to the Ninevites, and he just said, yeah, I think I'm actually going to run to Joppa and then go to Tarshish. He should have prayed there. He didn't. He should have prayed when he was sleeping at the bottom of the boat, and this pagan Gentile had to wake up the prophet and say, are you going to pray or what? And he didn't. He should have prayed before he said, throw me over the boat. He should have prayed all of those times. He never does. He never prays at all until this point. It's not until he's about to hit rock bottom in the Mediterranean Ocean that he finally prays and cries out to God. And this is what we're going to look at here in chapter 2 is his prayer in the belly of the fish. You know, Jonah was technically, he was technically a believer, but he was functioning like an atheist. You ever have seasons like that in your life where you're on paper, you're a believer, but the way you're living, the way you're thinking, the way you're, you're acting, the decisions you're making, and the, the absence of God's um, really mind in your decision-making process is functionally atheistic. That's really what Jonah is here. He's functionally an atheist. He's not really including the Lord. And he knows why. He doesn't want to pray to God. Why doesn't he want to pray to God? Because he knows what God's going to say. You ever avoid God in prayer because you know what he's going to say? Jonah's like, if I talk to God, I know. He knows he's in disobedience. He already knows that. So he doesn't want to pray. But he finally does. And we're going to spend our time this morning examining this prayer of Jonah, trying to figure it out. And I want you to, to understand a few things about this particular section of scripture here, okay? The Bible is um, really consistent of lots of different genres. The Bible is a library. Did you know that? It's, it's actually many different books written by many different authors, different continents, different languages. And within that, we have different genres. Uh, there are three in particular. We actually talked about this at our men's study, which you should come to tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. right here. Set your alarm. Um, we talked about this. There's, there's, there's a few basic overarching genres in the Bible. One is narrative. That's story. Another is discourse, that's like a sermon or a prophecy or something declared. And the third is poetry, okay? One of the, 33% of the Bible is poetry. Now, poetry uh, in, in the pre-sort of uh, pre-entertainment, pre-movies world, this was how pictures were painted for you. 
And poetry is not just meant to be analyzed, it's meant to be felt, it's meant to be experienced. So the Psalms largely are poetry, much of the prophets are poetry. It's meant to be read, not in such a a, a close analytical way, but in a way that that you feel what the person that's writing it is, is trying to transport you to feel. So as we read this, and we're going to read it in one chunk, because I want you to get the feeling of Jonah sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean. That's what he's trying to get us to feel. He's trying to get us to feel his desperation. He's trying to get you to feel the cold, the dark, as he sinks down, as you'll see, to the, to the depths of Sheol. The weeds are wrapping around his head. The bars of, of death are just right on him. This is something we're supposed to feel. So keep that in mind as we read it. Now, the other thing I want to mention I think I want to mention is that this prayer is very inspired by the Psalter. You know what the Psalter is? It's the Psalms. Jonah, um, he was a prophet. He grew up in Israel and he knew the Psalms. He, he had probably recited or memorized or sung or spoke or read the Psalms a lot of his life. And so what we're seeing in his prayer is a reflection of God's word coming out of him. And just a little point on this, you know, sometimes you don't have the Bible right next to you. But when you hide it in your heart, it comes out at the right times. So Jonah, even though he's in rebellion, God's word is sort of leaking out of him in this moment as he's just dealing with this really hard situation because he put the word of God down in his heart. One more thing here to note, not every prayer in the Bible is a model prayer. Okay, and I'm just going to be frank with you. I, I, I really wrestled with this passage this week. I'm an expositor. I I start with the passage. I don't say, I want to talk about this this week. And then I find a verse that says it's not what I do. Okay, I I open the text. I come to a blank slice. I say, what does this passage mean? What is it saying? And how does it apply? So I open this this week and I'm like, great, cool. This will be a sermon about how to pray. Perfect. Most time you come to, you know, as a preacher, you come to a sermon like, or you come to a text like this. You're like, cool, this is four points on how to pray. So I start reading this and I'm like, I don't, this is missing some stuff. I don't know if this is a model prayer. Now, there's good things in here. There's true things in here. We're going to mine those out. But I just want to set you up for this, that as we look at this, I want to point out the things that Jonah says that are good and true and right. But there's also some things in here that I think are are missing in Jonah's prayer. And I think they're missing because they're meant to reveal to us a deficit in his thinking. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a partial repentance. There's such a thing. Partial. It's kind of, it's kind of like my, my, uh, one of my kids when I'm like, bedtime chores, and they're like, okay. What are they doing? They're walking towards the bathroom. How fast are they doing it? Very slow. It's partial. They're like, yeah, okay. So God's going to get Jonah to a point where he does what he's supposed to do. But Jonah's like, mm, I'm going to do it as slow as possible. I'm going to do it as weak as possible. So what we're looking for here is what does Jonah get, what does he see clearly, and what does he miss blindly? So if you're an outline person, let me give you four things. Uh, We're going to read this first, but let me give you four things in this that Jonah saw clearly, and then two things that Jonah saw blindly. Let's read it together. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, 
The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, or you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So, I want you to see first, I want you to see four things that Jonah sees clearly. Things that are good and right and true in this prayer that we ought to delight in, take note of this morning. First, Jonah knew the desperation of his situation. Jonah knew the, def- the desperation of his situation. One thing Jonah is being very honest about is just how sunk he is. And yeah, I know that's a terrible pun, but he's sunk. He's really sunk, right? He really is. Uh, Jonah's poetic retelling paints an accurate picture of his fate without God's prevenient grace. He knows that he really is in a bad way. And you see that come out all throughout the psalm, uh, or in the song, verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. The Hebrew word for distress is the same word used for labor or travail. This is a deep anguish. Jonah is honest about what he's feeling. He's honest about his emotions in this moment. He's terrified. He's sinking. He's praying. This is he's sinking down in the water. And he says that he is um, calling out from the belly of Sheol. Okay. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. So, you know, Jonah, I don't know how much he knows about what's going on. He's just in the dark. He's been swallowed up. He feels like this is death. I'm dying. This is what dying probably feels like is what he's saying. And so he's crying out from this place and he's very honest about his situation. He says, the bars are closed upon me. In verse five, he says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. And the worst of all is in verse four, he says, I have been driven away from your sight, from God's sight, like a king who says, out of my sight. So Jonah's desperate. He sees his desperate situation clearly. Now, I just want to make a point here, and that is that clarity is seeing honestly where you were and would be apart from God's mercy. Part of clarity, and Jonah has some clarity here, is seeing where you were and where you would be if God had not intervened with his saving mercy. We don't think about that enough. As Christians, we really don't. We need to think about it more. I've been uh, just devouring this little documentary series by National Geographic called The Edge of the Unknown. And it's about these, these pro um, extreme sport athletes that, that do the craziest things, like go off 50 foot waterfalls and they go down these massive um, you know, mountains on snowboards. And every single one of the episodes is about somebody who almost died. And they show you the footage of, of so one of, this, uh, one of these uh, gals, like she, she got swallowed by an avalanche. And somehow survived. One of the guys went off this massive waterfall and he got sucked down under the current. He was under the water for three minutes and survived, right? Crazy stuff. Just crazy. One, one gal got stalked by a polar bear uh, in, in the Arctic for, for like a few days. It was crazy. It was like attacking their tent. And it was just like, so, but what I love about this show is I love watching these people react to the footage of them almost dying. And they're like, wow, I didn't realize I was that close to death. And then I love watching their, their emotion as they realize 
I am still here. Guys, this should be the Christian demeanor. Do you realize how dead you were? Do you realize how lost you were? You know, this is, this is the, the, the unfortunate consequence of Western modernity, post-modernity. We just really don't think we're that bad of people, right? That's why I asked you in the beginning, like, how deep do we need to go to change? Like, we think, yeah, I'm pretty good. I just need a little bit of this, a little bit of that, maybe a little bit of CrossFit, maybe a little bit of counseling, and I'm good, right? No, you're dead. <laughs> you're dead. Let me, let me show you what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 2, you guys are probably familiar with it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is what Paul says about our state before Christ. He says, you were dead in the trespasses in sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So picture a corpse floating down a river. That's you. That's where God found you. And you weren't passive, you were active, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you were basically a pawn, uh, according to the authority of the prince of the power of the air, among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath. That's who we were when God found us. That's who we were before Christ, like the rest of mankind. Paul drops this one on us. But God, who is rich in mercy, <laughs> because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved, preach Paul, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you realize how dead you were? Have you forgotten have you forgotten how dead you were in your sins? We cannot possibly realize just how alive we are in Christ until we realize just how dead we were without him. So just how lost do you think you were? And it's not just a matter of what you did before you got saved. It's a matter of what you would have done if you hadn't got saved. It's a matter of what you could do if you were allowed to. A lot of our sin lists are just a matter of what we were restricted from doing. Imagine what you would do. God's mercy is abundant. God is a saving God. And I can draw, listen, I can draw a direct line from how bad you think you were before you got saved and how bad you, you, you are apart from Christ. I can draw a direct line from that to how thankful and worshipful you are in your life. The most thankful people are the most people, the people that are the most aware of how wretched they were apart from the grace of God. Man, we were like Jonah, I mean, we were just sinking. Done dead. So Jonah knew the desperation of his situation. The second thing Jonah knew, if you're taking notes, the second thing Jonah knew was he knew God's providential hand was in the waves. Verse three, look at verse three. He says, for you cast me into the deep. Wait, I thought that the, the, the mariners, I thought that the, the sailors threw him into the deep. That's not what Jonah says. Jonah says, no, you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. What is Jonah recognizing here rightfully in his prayer? It is that God was the one that chucked him over the rail. <laughs> Lovingly. We talked about this last week. God wasn't picking on Jonah. God wasn't punishing Jonah. There was nothing to punish. God is disciplining his kid. And Jonah rightfully acknowledges in his prayer that God is the one directing and leading all circumstances providentially to work to his good. Jonah notes that. He sees that God is both sovereign over the storms. That means that he's the boss over them. And he's providentially working inside the storms. 
Every storm is God's storm. It doesn't mean that God creates every storm in your life. It doesn't mean that every storm in your life is because you're disobeying, but it means that every storm in your life is something God will use to get you right where he knows you're supposed to be. The third thing Jonah knew and sees in his, his psalm is Jonah knew God's willingness to hear and to listen. Guys, this is cool. Twice in this song of Jonah, we see Jonah mention that the, the, the cry of his voice is entering into the ears of the Lord. Look at verse 2. It says, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I called, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. And then verse 7, he says, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So what does Jonah know? Jonah knows that when he cries, God hears. You need to know that. When you cry, God hears. He hears that cry. He never ignores the cry of his kids. His ear is tuned into it. I know the difference between my kids' whine and my kids' cry. They're very different. I know the difference between he's touching me and ah, bleeding, right? There's a difference. Sometimes they're really similar, but they're different. And I tune into that. God knows our cry. He knows our cry, and he hears his kids. He doesn't ignore them. And what I love about this is that Jonah literally has no oxygen, no energy, no ability to earn God's favor in any way. All he can do is cry out, and that's all it takes for God to respond. Guys, we have something to rejoice in this morning as a church. Maybe two weeks ago, our dear friend Mike Moore, his dad has been in the hospital. Bob, Bob has lived his life in rebellion towards God abiding under his wrath, hardened to the gospel, went into the hospital with Mike. Mike's been trying to share the gospel with him. I tried to share the gospel. I don't even know if he could hear me. There was just a, a real hardness there. We've been praying. We stopped on a Sunday morning. We prayed for Mike's dad. Well, two nights ago, Mike calls me on the phone, and he said, you're never going to believe it. My dad just accepted the Lord. <laughs> Praise God, man. Praise God. <laughs> what? And, it's, and it, it, he may only live another day. We don't know. He's, he's really sick. But here's the beautiful thing. He cried and God heard. He doesn't have time to earn it. Thief on the cross. That, that, that man, Mike's dad, is just as saved as you are. He's just as saved. There, there's no more grace that can be dispensed into that man's life. He hasn't had a, a whole life to live of serving God and being sanctified. Doesn't matter. All of God's saving grace, more than could possibly be fathomed, is dispensed perfectly into Bob's account. Wow. Praise God. Praise God. He saves. God saves. It's one thing Jonah knows here. He knows that God saves. God never ignores his kids. And Satan really wants you to believe that you're at some point in your life that you cannot cry out anymore. He really wants you to believe that. He really wants you to believe that you're so far into this addiction or this secret or this place in your life or this depression or this, this sorrow or whatever. He wants you to believe that you're so far into that that, man, if you cry, God's done with you. I just want to rebuke that. You cry out. That is step one in God's restorative work in your life is cry out. Let him figure it out from there. Let him put the pieces back together. You cry out. He hears. He is a kind God. He's a good God. Jonah really screwed this one up, man. And like Peter, when he's sinking down in the waves, he just has time for one little prayer. Lord, save me. And God does. God saves him. God delivers him. Fourth thing that Jonah knew here, the fourth thing that John, Jonah sees here, 
is God's inclination to restore. You know, God is not just a God of salvation. Hear this. God is not just a God of salvation. He's a God of restoration, okay? And that, that is part of salvation. He's not just saving you positionally. He's saving you physically. He's saving you holistically. He's saving you emotionally. He's saving you eternally. He's saving you in order to restore you. And what I love about this, Jonah actually, at the heart of this psalm, Jonah realizes this and he believes this. There's this thing, by the way, in, uh, in Hebrew uh, poetry called a chiastic structure. It's like when you think about writing something, usually the point of what you write is at the beginning or at the end. But the ancient Hebrews, uh, they would write in such a way that the point of their message was often at the center of the chapter or the center of the song. And so what is the center of the chiastic structure of Jonah chapter 2? It's verse 4. Jonah said, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, but listen to Jonah's hope. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah has this confidence that God is not only going to save him, but God is going to restore him back into a place where he can look upon the temple. Now, I need to help you understand this a little bit because we don't live in the old covenant and we don't live where there's a temple, right? We don't have a temple anymore. We are the temple. And so what does Jonah mean by that? Well, for, for Jonah and his covenant that he was in with God, looking upon the temple was symbolic for so much. It was symbolic for God's presence. He's saying, I believe that I'm gonna be in your presence again, even though you've cast me out of your sight. I believe I'm in your presence again. It was symbolic for his people. It was symbolic for his peace because the temple was the place where God's wrath could be appeased through sacrifice for a moment and he could have peace with God. It was symbolic for God's place and it was, it was symbolic for God's purity and God's purpose. All of those things were wrapped up in the word temple for Jonah. So he's not just saying, I'm going to get to look at this big building again. He's saying, I have faith that God is going to restore my life so that I'm back in God's place with God's people, on God's purpose, with God's purity, doing God's stuff. He had that faith to believe that. Now, here's the question we should ask. How was Jonah so confident of that? How was Jonah so confident that God was going to not only save him, but restore him? The answer is the word Lord. I don't know if your Bible does this. Mine does it helpfully. In the ESV translation, you'll notice that every time Jonah refers to the word Lord, it's in all capitals. What does that mean? It means that's the covenant, listen church, that's the covenant name. The covenant name of God, Yahweh. What is Jonah doing? Jonah is not believing in his own faithfulness. He's not believing in his own deservedness. He's believing in the covenant faithfulness of God, that God made covenant with Jonah. He is the covenant-keeping God. His faithfulness is in God, or his trust and his faith is in God's faithfulness. And it's for this reason that he believes God is gonna restore him into this place. Now, for us, how do we know? How do we know God's going to deliver us? How do we know God's going to get us through this stuff? Uh, because of God's faithfulness to his covenant. If you are saved, if you are a believer, you are in a covenant with God. He is a covenant-keeping God. I want to read for you Romans chapter 8, verse 35, and I want you to see how this connects here. Here's what Paul says. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword... No, 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, a.k.a. everything, uh, everything created, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, here's the key, in Christ Jesus. If you leave that in Christ Jesus off, none of that makes sense. How can we have such confidence? Because we are in Christ Jesus. We are swallowed up in Christ Jesus. His perfect performance, his perfect uh, affection from the Father has been given to us. Now it gets better. In Romans chapter 8, 28, we get something that theologians call the golden chain. I want you to look at this. It's so good. Romans 8, 28, the golden chain. We know that for those who love God, that's believers, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now here's the golden chain. Listen. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Why is that the golden chain? Because you, you can't take one without taking all the other ones. What does that matter? It matters because if he called you, He's going to glorify you. You cannot separate the two. God is trustworthy because God is faithful to his covenant. And when Jesus died on the cross, God the Father made a covenant with the Son, and then he gave you that covenant faithfulness through faith. So it's not my performance, it's Jesus' performance and God's faithfulness according to his own nature to deliver on his covenant. If he shows you, he's going to glorify you. I don't believe you can lose your salvation because I think God is a little better than that. I don't think God pulled you out of being an enemy so that he could let you run away when you were not. He delivers his kids. We can have confidence in that. And if Jonah, who was in the old covenant, was confident that someday again he would get to make a sacrifice to the Lord and be in the temple, how much more should we that don't need to make sacrifices because one sacrifice has been made for all, and we who don't need to go to the temple, we don't need to go to a localized place, a geographical place, because the temple is now living within us. The Spirit of God has taken up residency within us. How much more hope do we have than Jonah? So if you're in a storm right now, I want you to remember the covenant faithfulness of God that his presence is in you. It's really good news. Anybody else excited about that? Okay, praise God. Just want to make sure you're good. You're good. You're out there. Okay. So Jonah's got some good things going in this prayer. He's got some good things going in this prayer. But there's a few things that, that are concerning about Jonah's heart in this prayer. And I want to point them out. And you might think that I'm just being hard on Jonah and I'm just picking on him, uh, just read the whole book. <laughs> Dude really is thick, okay? Um, so there's a couple things missing in, in, in Jonah's prayer, and I want to point those out. Two things that, that Jonah missed blindly. Jonah clearly has this good understanding that God is the one who saves, um, but he's lacking clarity on something here, and I want to point out what it is. And we see it in verse 8 and 9. Jonah's prayer takes an interesting turn in verse 8. He, he says... Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice, no, notice how many times Jonah says I, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Okay, um, Jonah's faith here seems not to be in God's forgiveness. It seems to be in his own future faithfulness. From the, from, from the, the, the belly of the fish, he's like, hey, don't worry, God, I'll pay this back. I'll be faithful. I'll sacrifice. I promise. I'll be good for it. Okay, that's the problem with that. That's, that's earning, Jonah. Jonah, you're trying to earn something. You, you still think that, that, that you, can, you can make this up with sacrifice. It's just not really what God's looking for. You notice the word pay? He says, I will pay. I got this. Lord. I'll pay you back. You ever forget your wallet? You know, and you're like, I'll, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. Venmo, you know? Venmo, anybody knows Venmo? Okay. Uh, Jonah's like, God, I'll hit you back. As soon as you, as soon as you spit me out and I do the thing and then I'll get that over with, I'll go back to the table, I'll make a sacrifice, we'll be good. Okay, there's a problem with that. And, and here's where I'm getting this. Here, here's where I'm getting this. For all of the good in Jonah's prayer, there's a real glaring omission. You know what it is? You know what it is? Jonah not once confesses that he has sinned before God. And this is an important point for us because see, this is what partial repentance looks like. Partial repentance looks like, I feel really bad about my situation. I feel really bad that I got caught. And then there's circumstances. I feel bad about that. That's actually, that's not repentance. That's not repentance. So Jonah clearly sees that he's in, in desperation, but not once in Jonah's prayer does he do this. Lord, I have sinned. Would you cover me? He admits his situation, but he doesn't admit his sinfulness. And this is a problem. See, it's always easier to mourn tribulation than it is to mourn your trespass or to confess that. It's, it's so hard. This is, this is what this is like. This is when someone comes up to you and says, hey, uh, yeah, I, noticed, I noticed you were crying earlier because of what I said. Yeah, I'm really sorry that what I said made you feel that way. Or I'm, I'm, No, that's nice. I got that wrong. I'm really sorry that you felt that way about what I said. What's wrong with that, uh, that, that apology? It's not genuine. Here, here's what a genuine apology would say. Hey, I was wrong saying that. That was wrong. And it, and it hurts you. I'm sorry. So what Jonah's doing here is I, I think he's, he's confessing, but only at a, a surface level. I want you to compare Jonah's prayer here to one that you're very familiar with, Psalm 51. I'm just going to read it for you. And I want you to see the difference between David's prayer. This is David's prayer after he's caught in adultery with Bathsheba. He sent Bathsheba's husband off to die to cover up his sin. Nathan comes in and after some amount of time and puts his finger in the chest of David, he says, you're the man, David. David's crushed by his sin. And he prays this prayer, Psalm 51. I'm so thankful for this prayer. I want you to see the difference and some of the similarities between this prayer. Here's what David says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Listen to what he says. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. David was just crushed by his sin. He was just immobilized by his sin, by his guilt. And he brings it to the Lord and says, God, please, I have sinned against you. Take this from me. Well, what's the difference? What's Jonah doing? Jonah is like, I'm drowning. Save me. Did you forget the part about why you're drowning, Jonah? Why are you drowning, Jonah? Verse 4, against you and you only. Now, this is key. This is so key. This is so key for repentance. In verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Who did, Scott, who did David sin against? He sinned against God. That's who he sinned against. 
He goes on, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in, in the secret heart. You get the point. It, it, it just David goes on to confess deeply his sin. Jonah doesn't. Now listen to verse 11. David goes on. He says, cast me not away from your presence. What's David concerned about? He's concerned about the presence of the Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Hold me up or uphold me with a willing spirit. And then he says this. Then, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. One of the true signs of true repentance is that now you want to go help other people see how they can become free from that. David says, forgive me so I can help others walk out of this. Jonah is still angry that he has to go preach mercy to the Ninevites. You know, in the next chapter, spoiler alert, in the next chapter, God forgives the Ninevites because they repent in dust and ashes, literally, and Jonah's mad about it. He's like, dang it, I knew you were going to forget these jerks. And you're just like, you're What? What? How could a man who's just been saved from the depths of death still be angry that God would show mercy to his enemies? See, the problem is not that Jonah wasn't shown mercy. The problem was that Jonah didn't believe he needed mercy. That's the problem. If we want to be changed, if we want to be transformed, it's not just enough to receive the mercy of God. We need to see that we have to have the mercy of God, that we do not deserve the mercy of God. And it's from that place that we can become an effective missionary of mercy to the world, to the lost. Jonah missed it. And here's why, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Here's why in verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Humiliating. You know what God thinks about Jonah's self-righteousness? He spits it out. <laughs> just like Laodicea, just like the lukewarm religion in Revelation. Now, God still loves Jonah. Jonah's exactly where he's supposed to be now. God's put him right where he's supposed to be, but he's done so in a humiliating way because my friend Rick says, he says that the key to humility is humiliation. And we don't like that. Can I have the humility without the humiliation? Jonah needs some humility, so God gives him some humiliation. He shows up on the shores covered in vomit, kind of like me in my story at the beginning, remember? Um, yeah. The second thing Jonah doesn't realize here is he doesn't realize that God's mercy extends beyond him. He's so focused in on his own story, so focused in on his own thing that he's missing the fact that God is a God who's desiring to save the nations. In verse eight, who is Jonah referring to here? He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who's he talking about? Why is he talking about idolatry all of a sudden? He goes from thanking God and praising God to all of a sudden, people that are idolaters are not gonna get saved. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the people in the boat up above. These guys are never gonna get saved, but Lord, save me, please. You can save me, Lord. Those guys will never get saved. Isn't it ironic in verse, uh, verse nine that Jonah is literally saying salvation belongs to the Lord, but God can't save these people? Do you see that? He's literally saying salvation belongs to the Lord and God can't save these pagan idolaters. Ironically, unbeknownst to Jonah, as he's sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean, who's getting saved above on the water? The pagan Phoenician polytheists are getting saved. The ones that he just said here can't get saved. Jonah's got a thing or two to learn about who God can save. 
And guys, I'm just gonna tell you right now, so do I. I am so faithless sometimes about who God can change. It's just like my default setting to look at certain people and be like, not that guy. Not gonna happen. The, the, the thing we're really supposed to take here from Jonah is that we are Jonah. I told you this last week. Jonah was a parable. He was, he was a real man. He really lived. This really happened. But he was a parable of Israel's hardness. He was a parable of Israel that was called to be a missionary to the world. Israel was God's light, God's beacon to the Gentiles. And they completely missed it and traded it in for a prideful, righteous racism. They thought, we're, we're the chosen. We're the people of God. And, and these Ninevites, they just don't, they don't deserve it. This is what Jonah is picturing. And guys, we, we got to watch for this. If there is ever a point where I see somebody as too far gone, Lord, help me. His mercy is so much greater than we can possibly imagine. Mike, your dad getting saved is just such a testament to that, dude. Like, is there anybody God can't save? We got to believe that. There are people in this community that are hurting, and we have got to be missionaries of mercy. Not our mercy. It's not about our programs and our sandwiches we give out and our things we're doing as a church. No, no. It's not our mercy. It's God's mercy they need. God has been merciful. God is merciful. Jonah can't see outside of his own little, his own little thing. He's like, I'm saved. That's good. Thanks, God. Thanks for saving me. But the Ninevites got to burn, right? <laughs> it's like the disciples when they're, when they're like, hey, Lord, uh, can you call down fire on these guys? Remember that? Yeah. Okay. Let me, let me just end here with a couple of things that I think we should take away from this, this passage as a whole. Two things, and then we'll close, and we'll, get, we'll jump in some circles. First, uh, I really want you guys to remember this. <clears throat> We're all mixed bags. We are all mixed bags. This is what I was wrestling with this week. As I opened this passage, I'm like, is this a good prayer? Is this a bad prayer? Is Jonah a good prophet or a bad prophet? Is he, is he, has he changed here or has he not changed? Well, here's the answer. Uh, yes and no. Jo- Jonah is a prophet. He is called by God. He belongs to the Lord. He says some true things, and he also says some stupid things. Uh, that's me, right? That's me. Why? Because we're in process. And we have to remember this sometimes, that, that we are all in process. And the reason I tell you this is because I want you to mistrust your own inclinations. I want you to mistrust your own inclinations. I want you to go, you know, I feel like this is right, but I'm like Jonah, man. I, I only see in part. I am very flawed in my thinking. I'm very flawed in my feeling. And so what do I do? You, you do what Jonah had to do. He had to go back and get God's word again. Chapter 3, verse 1, God gives the word of God to Jonah again. Because that's what we have to keep doing. We have to keep coming back to God's word and saying, God, I'm hopelessly flawed. I know some true things. I say some right things. But I also say a lot of stupid things. And I don't even know what I'm wrong. I don't even know what I don't know. Jonah's a mixed bag. And I also want to say this. Don't be too quick to assume that because you're sad about your circumstances, you are sorrowful over your sin. Okay, discern the difference. Jonah should remind us of this. Don't be too quick to assume that because you believe that God will save you, that you are believing God can save others. These are all lessons I think Jonah is really meant to, to personify for us. We, see, we should see ourselves in his story. And one last thought, and I'll close. And this is just, this is just special features, extra footage, whatever. Uh, we, we need more Jonah chapter two spaces in our lives. I'm really convinced of this. This, this, is, this is something that, that I think our generation is missing. What do I mean by Jonah chapter two spaces? I mean, Jonah took a moment to, to reflect and pray and think and thank God. And I think that's praiseworthy. Jonah, Jonah took time in the middle of his tribulation to stop and to actually just be and to think and to allow stuff. We don't do this in our culture, do we? We just like move right on to the next thing. 
We, just move, we, we have a hard conversation or a hard phone call or something stressful or we see something stressful on the news. We don't stop and lament. We don't stop and think. We don't stop and pray. We don't stop and process. We don't, we don't sit down and, and, and take a Jonah 2 moment. We just move right on to Jonah 3. I was at a conference this week. This guy was just so convicting. He was talking about, uh, about um, Acts chapter 6, I think it was, and the church. Everything's going really great. People are getting saved. And then all of a sudden, Stephen gets murdered. Ugh. And then you could just read right past that. But then look, more people get saved and they keep doing, the church keeps building and that's great. But he was pointing out verse two in chapter, Acts chapter six where it says that godly men went out and wept and buried Stephen. He was just pointing out that we need to do that. We need to do that. Don't be too quick to be like, all right, back to work. Keep doing, keep going, keep plowing. That we need to be people that stop and reflect on our disobedience, stop and reflect on God's Get forgiveness, his mercy, his kindness, what he's doing, what he might be doing. We need to have space to lament what is broken and what is lost. So Jonah chapter 2, you could remove it from the book and the story would be fine. But what Jonah chapter 2 does for us is it reminds us that we need to have those moments in our story where we pause and we think and we give God thanks and we pray. Amen? So my prayer for us this week is that we would have clarity in the belly of our trials, that we would stop running and start crying out, that we would repent deeply and assess rightfully our own sinfulness, and that we would give praise, thanksgiving, and prayers to the God who saves. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for Jonah, chapter two. Every word that you've written is edifying, good for instruction, Father, we, we take this passage and we just we choose to apply it. We see ourselves in this passage. We see our need for you, Christ. We see our need for the greater prophet, Jesus. But we thank you that you are a God who saves, a God who restores, a God who hears our cries, a God who comforts us, a God who honors his covenant, a God who restores us into his presence, a God that provides for our lack of purity. God, you're so worthy of our praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.